we've created work as though human uniqueness is a problem or a bug that we need to fix. In this world right now, if you aren't talking about love and how humans can find it in their work, you are running a broken business. Now, it might not break immediately, but given everything that's going on demographically, it's gonna break. And it will break because you didn't take seriously one of the defining aspects of the human experience. Hey everyone, welcome to Work's Not Working, a show about forward-thinking people leaders, innovators and academics, and how they think we can fix work to make it more meaningful, healthy, inclusive and sustainable. Brought to you by The People Space. I'm Sean Harrington, and on the show today, why Marcus Buckingham thinks one of the reasons work is not working is that we have designed love out of the workplace. I first came across Marcus when I started writing about human resources more than a decade ago. Marcus was speaking at an event about how to build a strengths-based organisation, and one phrase stood out which I have never forgotten. What a waste. Throughout businesses across the world, we are wasting the tremendous abilities of our people by failing to engage them or to care about their welfare and development. And we are wasting money as businesses in training and policies that do nothing to engage our people. Little appears to have changed today. And one reason is we are not building work that helps each of us to thrive, to love our work. Later on, we'll discover how our uniqueness is a result of synaptic connections in our brain, more complex and massive than the stars in 5,000 Milky Ways. And how this uniqueness means we love some things and loathe others. We will find out what percentage of your day you should spend doing things you love and how going above this enables you to become more creative, innovative, collaborative and resilient. And Marcus will reveal the seven devils we need to watch out for. But first, a little bit about Marcus. He was born in High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire and grew up in the village of Radlett in Hertfordshire. While taking a degree in social and political sciences at Cambridge University, he was recruited by educational psychology professor Donald O'Clifton, the founder of Selection Research Incorporated, SRI. Clifton had co-founded SRI to develop interviews that would allow businesses to identify talents in individuals to match people to the right roles. SRI acquired the Gallup organization in 1988 and Marcus became a member of a team working on a survey that measured a broad range of factors to contribute to employee engagement. Based on these surveys and on interviews with thousands of managers, he published his first book, First Break All the Rules what the world's greatest managers do differently. The book became a New York Times bestseller. In 2006, he formed the Marcus Buckingham Company, creating management training programs and tools. Since then, he's published a number of other best-selling books, including Go Put Your Strengths to Work and Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. His most recent, Love and Work, came out in 2022. So thank you, Marcus, for joining us today. I really want to talk about your new thinking and your new book. To set the context, the core of the book is that we've designed love out of workplaces. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that and why you think it's important that we do have love in a workplace. Well, yeah, there's sort of two parts to that. Um, it's on the one level, we've got uh, even pre-pandemic, 
we had low levels of engagement, low levels of resilience. We had burnout in doctors and nurses pre-pandemic that were at epidemic proportions. Um, and also graduates graduating with um, serious anxiety and um, social anxiety and uh, Adderall, Xanax, just you could tell that something both about university and school and at work wasn't working for us, isn't working for us. And so now we come sort of out of the pandemic. The pandemic really just turned that up to 11. We've had an opportunity, all of us, to look in the mirror over the last two years and really sort of ask ourselves questions about who we are and what are we dedicating all of our lives to. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to have to go back out and get work and, and earn money. But um, an awful lot of us have asked lots of questions of ourselves about what kind of mark we're leaving and what our work is in our lives. And at the same time, we've come out of the pandemic to really, really tight labor markets. And it's going to stay that way for the next five years. So for companies, this is an interesting time to go, why would good people want to come work for us when both pre-pandemic and during work wasn't really working for people? So there's an opportunity for really forward thinking companies to think differently about what they promise to their people. Um, for individuals, you know, we, every single one of us has uniqueness in us in terms of what we love, what we lean into. And that uniqueness isn't a function of how we're brought up. It's not a function of our gender or our race or our region or nationality. It's a function of the clash of our chromosomes. We know this. We know that every single one of us has a network of synaptic connections in our brain by the time we get to 19, 20, that is more massive and filigree and complex than there are stars in 5,000 Milky Ways. We have a hundred trillion synaptic connections in our brains. And although our brains can grow and learn more synapses over our lives, what we do know also is that you grow more synapses in those parts of your brain where you have the most pre-existing. So we know that each one of us is really unique and that that uniqueness persists over the course of our life. In fact, it intensifies. And we know that that uniqueness leads us to love some things and loathe others, lean into some things and be bored by others, find flow in some things and be uh, really stilted and disjointed in other things. And that pattern of loves and loathes and passions and boredoms um, is unique to every one of us. And we hope that work will be one place in which we'll get a chance to express some of that. Not that we do what we love. I mean, there's absolutely no data that suggests that the most successful people do all that they love. But there's a lot of data that shows that the most successful people in any profession find love in what they do. And the threshold number from a number of different research sources suggests that 20% is a really good threshold to think about. Every day, can you find 20% of ac your activities in the day of things that you love? Not 80%, not 100%. But if you get below 20%, if you get days that go by with no activities that you love, because you're just putting in your time for your money, then it's psychologically deeply damaging for you. Contrast that, where over 20% every day of things that you love we know that you are more creative, more innovative, more resilient, more able to collaborate effectively when you're doing activities that you love. We can see the brain chemistry change. You've got more vasopressin, oxytocin, norepinephrine, anandamide. Your brain literally opens up. The neocortex dysregulates and you open your brain up to more information, which is why you perform cognitive tasks better when you're doing things you love. You identify people's emotions more accurately when you're doing things to people that you love. So for us as individuals, it turns out to be hugely psychologically 
healthy to deliberately try to find activities that you love for at least 20% of your time in your job and then flip that around for companies if they want innovation if they want creativity if they want resilience you've got to talk about love loveless resilience is an oxymoron loveless excellence is an oxymoron so i think it's a really interesting coming together of each human going i need jobs in which i get a chance to express something of which i love and you've got companies going uh i think i want to try to promise you that actually not just because i want good outcomes but because i want to be attractive to the best people that's why i wrote love and work um because i think now is a seminal time for both those constituencies what i think is really interesting here is and you touch upon it when you talk in your book about viewing humans as empty vessels ready to be filled up and there's this view to me i've been looking quite a lot into things like compassion and empathy at work as you mm. said people might be looking at talking about that from an organizational perspective but i'm not convinced that it's really matching up and, and as you say there's models in place there's systems in place and we're being matched into those i just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that yeah well biology loves variety i mean one of the defining characteristics of human beings is our variation and not our variation across gender or generation or sexual orientation or race although those things are interesting and important it's just variation between two people who grew up in the same house from the same mother and the same father. You've got inside families. I mean, there's more differences in terms of your synaptic network inside of your family than there is between two people of different genders or different races. And yet all we hear talked about is these broad categories of difference. But the real interesting and powerful difference is between you and your brother, you and your sister, you and a very close sibling. We've got such intricate uniqueness inside of every one of us and faced with that uniqueness what work and to some extent what school has done is it's deliberately pretended that's not real it's deliberately said look your uniqueness the fact that you are driven by this lean into this find love in this are most creative when you're involved in this but over here the person in the same job as you is driven by different things is creative in different ways learns in different ways that difference is really annoying to us and um, just like it's really annoying in school when we're trying to get you to pass standardized tests your uniqueness isn't just irrelevant to the project of school your uniqueness is an impediment to the project of school and university and at work it's the same we decide that jobs an emergency room nurse let's say there's 60 nurses they're all in the same job well we define that job by its methods um, by a model a set of behaviors that we expect to see in said nurse or in said nurse supervisor here are the competencies the nurse supervisor is supposed to have here is the way in which we will measure you against those competencies we will then identify your gaps to the competencies and then development for you isn't about manifesting your uniqueness it's about how closely can we get you to match the model and that's not an exaggeration that's just everywhere that's how we think about human performance at work we're going to define the model a priori independent of you we'll define the model of the behaviors we want and then we measure you against the model well you start peeling that onion at all it's really apparent that individuals feel like this whole project at work isn't about me at all it doesn't actually want to see me at all and so I couldn't agree with you more. We've built systems which deliberately, and I'm not meaning this cynically, I don't think companies are trying to 
to alienate their people um, or psychologically damage their people, but they're doing exactly that sometimes with really good intentions. I mean, I would dream of saying that the folks in human resources that are building these systems aren't well-intended or the managers that are building the systems aren't well-intended. They, they are, but we've built systems of conformity. And rather than telling each individual nurse in the emergency room, look, here are the specific skills that everybody's supposed to have. But beyond that, how you administer care, how you make decisions to treat and help that patient, how you build a relationship with that patient, that's all up to you guys because you're unique and every one of you is driven by different things and make different choices and we're, into, we're not, not interested in that. We want to pay attention to that because you're a whole human at work and we want you, yes, we want you to give care, but we want you to give care authentically and that's going to be different for every one of these 60 nurses. We don't say that. We don't really say that anyway. I'm not picking on the NHS, but we've, we've created work as though human uniqueness is a problem or a bug that we need to fix. And what's weird is that more and more jobs, the rote part of those jobs, more and more those are being handled by technology. And most parts, the most valuable parts of most jobs, including housekeeping, manufacturing work, delivery driver work, nursing, financial services, sort of any job you look at, the most valuable parts of those jobs are becoming the most human parts, the parts that require authenticity and uniqueness and human connection and forcing conformity almost by definition prevents you from adding that kind of authentic value so it is an odd time this is a really odd time not least because most of the human capital management systems in place that we live within are the ones that execute that conformity you're measured inside of an hcm system against a bunch of rote competencies or attributes or key results areas and your uniqueness is frankly just irrelevant to all of that which is which is super um discordant and psychologically destructive um so look in a in a very very tight labor market that gives a lot of power to individuals to start saying to companies you need to shape up otherwise i'm otherwise i'm gone it's an interesting time Absolutely. And you pick up on something that, that will continue, which is obviously that move towards machine learning and AI and more of those rote jobs, which I think is absolutely vital here and why, again, your book's coming out at a good time. In the book, you talk about seven devils, <laughs> the seven devils. I know we haven't got a lot of time here, but I wondered if you could just quickly run through those seven devils and why we need to watch out for them. Oh, OK. Yes. Yeah. So. So I, I just called them seven devils because the, the, Catherine um, Goldstein, uh, the author, said that the most dangerous thing about the devil is that he doesn't think he's the devil. He thinks he's for good. And so uh, I, I said, there's, in, in your quest to live a life in which you get a chance to do a lot of what you love, there are seven devils that think they're good, but they're going to drag you off your path and drag you into a life that probably isn't uh, healthy for you at all but they don't look like devils, they look good. So they are, um, the first one is groupthink, where you think that your identity should be um, basically derived from certain things that you have in common with other people, like your gender or your nationality or your religion or your fandom for this soccer team or this one, or your race or your sexual orientation. And of course, those things are interesting, but um, you share them with millions of other people. Um, and yes, of course, you should have some parts of your identity tied to what groups you belong to. 
But the really interesting stuff about you is all the stuff that you share with precisely no one. That's love strength, if you will, versus group strength. What are the specific things that you love? Whether no one's, everyone's told you this or not, those things that, that you love, those things that you vanish into, those things where you experience flow, those details around those things are utterly unique to you. You share them with no one. So that love strength is, is more abundant because difference, uh, like love, is abundant. The fact that you've got the loves that you have don't affect anyone else at all. There's no out group. There's no out group thing. There's always an out group. So, so don't derive your identity primarily from what you share with other people because you share it with other people. Uh, the excellence curse is that people often define a strength as what you're good at and a weakness as what you're bad at. But of course, that's weird because there are some things that all of us are really good at that we hate. So what do you call that? Uh, some people have built their careers, unfortunately, around things that they're really good at, but they hate to do. So you've got someone who, I don't know, turns out to be a doctor because they were really good at biology or pre-med, but they hated it. Yeah, but someone else came in and said, yeah, but you're really good at it. You've got to be a doctor. But you go, well, I hate sick people. <laughs> Every day they keep coming. Um, really, the proper definition is that a weakness is any activity that weakens you, even if you're good at it. A strength is any activity that strengthens you, even if you're not good at it yet. Your strengths really are those specific activities that you love. Um, and performance is what you're good at or bad at. And some things that you deeply love, you will, because of practice, because of obsession, because you, your brain does actually work faster, some of those things you will actually get to be so good at, people will pay you to do them. Other ones you don't, like if you love something that brings you love and joy into your life, but you can't get paid for it, that's a hobby. And that's okay. Hobbies bring more love into your life, so that's, that's fine. But but we should define that properly. Like just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you love it. And if you're good at something that you don't love, all of our data would show that you are less resilient, more likely to burn out, and more likely to quit in the first year, even if you're good at it. That's the excellence curse. Misinstinct is when you're yearning to do something, but you're not yearning because of the activity itself. It's like the the pop idol, or the, you know those singing shows where people are putting their hands up to go, I want to I want to be a singer, I want to volunteer. But they're not really doing it because they love the activity of practicing chords or remembering the lyrics or practicing arrangements with a band. They want the fame or the adulation or the prestige. Many of us find our careers dragged in. You know, somebody goes, you're so good at this, we're going to move you out of it and give you a better title. And it takes a really strong person indeed to go, wait a minute, I know I'm going to get more money and a bigger title, but... I actually love the activity of this and this and this. And I'm not going to get to do that if I go here. So when we're yearning for things because of the prestige, it's a, it's a misinstinct. Oh, feedbacking. Uh, this is a long, we could talk long and hard about this one, but we are right now we have a we have a pandemic of COVID, but we also have a pandemic of, of feedback. And there's more and more tools supposedly to help people to give you feedback about you. And the whole feedback movement is based on the idea that number one, I know the truth about you. You have blind spots. I will tell you who you are because I have the truth about you. And second, if I want to help you get better, I need to tell you what to do in order to improve. So it's, it's I've got the truth and then I've got the prescription. And neither of those things are true. We know that for sure because when I am seeing you I have complete observer bias. It's called idiosyncratic rater effect. I can't see you because I've got this idiosyncratic view of the world. I'm not even aware of because I'm inside of it. 
Bottom line, it means that when I rate you on anything, it reflects me, not you. And that's not, that's not just um, uh, unconscious bias toward race or gender or something, although that exists. It's really just that I can't see you. I think I can see you, but I can't because I'm actually idiosyncratic in my rating of you. So I don't really see you. I don't have the truth about you. And second, we know now that learning is insight. All learning comes from inside out. So you can't pour it into me. Me telling you what to do to be better basically is me smothering you with me. As though I'm really saying to you, listen, you'd be better if you only were more like me. Okay, no. What humans don't want, they don't want feedback. They want attention, which really means, can you give me... Yeah, give me your reaction. If I write something and you tell me I didn't understand it, that's your reaction. That's not feedback. That's your reaction. And, and you own that. And that's great. Because if I then came and said to you, well, you shouldn't have been confused by it, you're going to say, well, no, but I was. So you, if you're a manager, you owe people your reaction. Hey, look, when you show up late for work, it makes me think you don't care. The person can't say, well, it shouldn't make you feel that way. Because you go, no, no, it does. That's your reaction. Um, you owe people your reaction. And that's it. You owe them your reaction. You don't owe them your feedback because you don't know them in terms of the truth and you don't actually know what to do to help them get better. Fear fighting is a big one. Fear fighting is the next devil. And that's that you're told to fight your fears, face up to your fears, um, push your fears back, break through your fears as though the fear is the opposite of love and that we should live a life without fear. Uh, no, 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 no. Your fears are actually one of the best messengers for what you love. When you fear something, what you should do with fear, you can't live without fear. No human can live without fear. You should do with fear what you should do with any companion in life. Turn to them. Ask them loads and loads and loads of questions. Look them in the eye. If you do that with your fears, you'll find what you love. You'll find something in there, some person, some situation, something that you yearn for, something that you love. Your fears are like pain for the psyche. Your pain tells you where to focus. Your fears tell you where to focus. So you don't fight your fears. You make love to your fears. And your fears will lead you toward understanding that which you love. And, and you know, we always, we always say you should get beyond your comfort zone. But that's wrong. It's just wrong. The choice in life isn't comfort or no comfort. There are some things that are beyond your comfort zone you should never do. And when someone tells you to do it because it's beyond your comfort zone, it's just, it's just terrible advice. What somebody should say to you is, if you feel fear, that is a go signal, not a stop signal. Fear is a great clue to what you love. Follow the path of fear because that's the path of love. Now, sometimes it'll be comfortable or not. Comfort's irrelevant. It's like, if you feel some fear, examine it. Uh, two more, rate me, rank me as a devil. It's all about comparison. We live in a life of comparison. Social media emphasizes the comparison, but so does performance management systems at work. We do forced curves a lot where someone will come in at the end of the year and they'll be told, well, you're a three. And the person will go, I'm not, I'm not a three. I'm a person. No, you're a three. We were going to give you a four, but we ran out of fours because we're a forced curve, forced distribution. We've only got a few fours left and you don't get one of them. So all the way through, for all these parents hand-wringing about social media, forcing comparisons, just go to work and you'll see comparisons everywhere. And what we need to remember is that when you compare yourself to anyone else, you disappear. Looking at anyone else gives you nothing about you, shows you nothing about you because of the massive complexity of your brain. You don't exist to be compared with others. 
Um, and then the last one, suck it up. And that's just almost the most pernicious, most dangerous devil, which basically says, hey, love's a luxury, man. Some jobs, you just got to do them. For most people, love, it, love is a privilege that is only for the rarefied few. It's like, no, it isn't. Don't be so condescending. You study the best people in any job, the people who really, really love any job, and you'll find love in it. And also you'll find a whole bunch of variety and creativity and a world. When you look at the world of a job through the lens of people that love it, what they share with you is mind-blowing. And just because you don't love it doesn't mean it's loveless. It means you don't love it. So my, the very first job I interviewed and learned about when I joined Gallup 25 years ago was housekeepers. You interview the eight best housekeepers at Walt Disney World and you just ask open-ended questions and shut up. They'll share with you a vividness about what it is to clean rooms and what they uniquely love about it. One of them was saying, I still remember like vacuuming herself out of the room and seeing the lines and the patterns of the lines. One says she sits on the toilet and lies in the bath. And I remember at the time going, why? She's like, well, it's like the last thing I do is lie on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan because that's the very first thing the guest does after a long day out in the park. You come in, flop down on the bed, turn on the fan, and if dust comes off the top of the fan, guest thinks that the rest of the room is as dirty as the top of the fan. And I love seeing the room through the guest's eyes. That's what I love. Whereas another one goes, I want to make a scene with the little fluffy toys the kids leave on the bed. Mickey and Minnie dancing on the windowsill. And so you're looking at a job, which if you're not careful, you start going, well, no one can love that job. We just need to force rules and make sure people arrive and leave at the right time. And that's the job because you just got to suck it up. Uh, no. I mean, if you design a job as though there's no love in it, then there'll be no love in it. And it's, by the way, not ironic that, that some of the rules in place actually said, don't sit on the toilet, don't lie in the tub, don't lie on the bed, don't touch any more of the guest possessions you need to <laughs> to clean the room. So the job was sort of defined lovelessly, the way that we do many jobs, frankly. But you actually talk to people who thrive in any job and you find love in it, even if the company hasn't defined it that way. So no, love isn't a luxury, it's actually a necessity for all of us. And if you, if you block up your loves at work, then that's not neutral. Love unexpressed destroys you. It turns into a super caustic force that eats you up from the inside out. And all of us have felt that, where we're in a relationship or in a job where we don't get to express that which we love. That's dehumanizing and psychologically destructive. So yeah, love isn't a luxury, it's a human necessity. I think that's really interesting and also extremely challenging for a lot of, of business leaders. Could we just end very quickly, just talking a bit about the leader in context of this. How would you define, if you could, a love and work leader? What is it about them? What practically can they do to bring that love, I guess, back in, into the loveless workplace? Well, there's really two things. I mean, there's 72 things and every leader's different. But if you look at what are the characteristics of bringing love into the work, the first is teams. Almost all work is teamwork. 91, 92% of people say they do most of their work on teams. And that's been the case forever. The oldest human art we've ever found is the picture of a team on a wall in Sulawesi, an island in Indonesia that's 44,000 years old. And it's a painting of a team capturing some wild animals, which is kind of amazing. And the picture itself shows, I won't bore you with how they show it, but they denote the different personalities of the team members. And so you can see even 50,000 odd years ago, 
somebody sat around a campfire and went, wait a minute, my brother and my sister and my cousins were all a bit different. One's strong, one's fast, one understands the movement of animals, one um, just is incredibly brave. And what happens if we put them all together into a team and that all of those unique loves are useful if we get them to combine and, and we could do things together uniquely that we couldn't do alone. And that's a team, like a brand new technology, it's a team. Um, but it's funny because today we don't talk about teams that way at all. We talk about teams as there's no I in team. And the team is designed to tell you that you're not as important as the team. Of course, that's not what teams are for at all. It's the opposite. Teams are supposed to be built of lots of unique loves. Teams make homes for people's unique loves. Um, and the, the, the manager or leader that understands that really what you're trying to do is build high performance teams and that uniqueness is the building block of teams. That's how you bring unique loves in. Which sounds obvious, but you know, why, why are nurses and teachers measurably the least resilient, least engaged professions? They have such a strong purpose, such a strong why, their purpose is, their calling is so clear, and yet they are burned out. They have higher levels of PTSD than veterans returning from war zones. Why? Because there's no teams in hospitals. There's no teams in schools. We've built, wherever you build teamless work environments, like huge call centers, for example, um, you get really bad emotional outcomes and performance outcomes. And that's why you've got destroyed nurses. When I mean, you look at the NHS, you know, a lot of talk about burned out doctors and nurses, and there's reasons why because of the pandemic, but what no one talks about is that the span of control in, a, in the NHS for nurses is far too big for a team. You have one nurse to 60, one nurse supervisor to 60 nurses. It's like, that's not a team, that's a mess. Um, and that's why you've got nurses going, no one sees me, no one can understand who I am. I'm not coming together with other people to achieve something as a team that we couldn't do alone. That's, but, and yet that's the human context for work. So wherever you see teamless work environments, which you see everywhere, you see loveless work environments. Um, it's weird that all the human resources systems out there aren't team systems, they're individual systems. You're an individual contributor. Um, so first thing for leaders to do Focus on teams and how you build teams, who you select for teams, how you can get people to collaborate together. The second is uh, love lives at five foot level. It's not like, well, what's your calling? It's, hey, this week, what are the particular activities that you might love to do this week and next week? And how can we actually tie those to the work that you do? We don't need to do it 100%. Maybe it's just 20%, but it's every day. So the simple ritual shared by all the best leaders at whatever level is a check-in, one-on-one. Funnily enough, it's not even really a team ritual. It's an individual ritual where the team leaders checking in with each person on the team for 15 minutes, either remotely or in person. And all they're doing is asking two questions. One about last week and one about this week. What do you love and loathe last week? And then what are you excited about this coming week? And how can I help? Short-term past, short-term future, about what you love and what your work is. What you love, what your work is. 52 weeks out of the year. That's what the best leaders do. If people don't do that because they've got too many people, they don't have the time, they've got too many people, then they've got too many people. Um, we should totally rename, if we want love and work leaders and love and work organizations, if we, want, if we really do want to bring love back into the workplace, we should rename span of control to span of attention. And if you can't give individualized attention really simply, but frequently to what the person loves and what the person's excited about, 
52 weeks out of the year, um, then you should cut somehow. You need to change the way in which you've got your team constructed so that you can. Um, the data on that are unequivocal. If those managers that check in, it's actually once every 11 days turns out to be the key cutoff point, but they'll drive first year voluntary turnover, um, sorry, first year voluntary retention up 67% and drive engagement up 77%. So it, we've solved the retention and engagement problem. It's not about pain, it's not about benefits. We've solved it. It's about frequent light touch attention to me and my work. And the leader can do that for free. It's just that, unfortunately, we've built such complicated work environments that we've forgotten the really simple, powerful power of your attention. I was just speaking to a global HRD a couple of days ago, and they said as soon as they get 15 people in a team, they think it's probably time for another manager or leader or somebody else to run it. It's getting too big and it needs to be looked at. So that's interesting. So I guess bringing that together, love is a word we don't hear a lot about in work. So just to end, I'd like to know how you'd persuade hard-nosed, financially driven CEOs to open a book that's about love and work. What's the sort of the key, key sort of driver from your perspective of why it would, would help them? Well, first of all, that's why I picked Harvard as my publisher, HBR, because I was like, we need to rehabilitate this word. As humans, we all know that there's no creativity without love. There's no productivity without love. Um, there's no generosity or collaboration without love. So we know that as humans. But yeah, in the world of work, we've sort of gone, you know what, I don't expect your job to love you back, man. Just do your thing and go home to the people you love. So to begin with, I was like, let's, uh, let's give it the Harvard stamp um, so that people can, can initially just take seriously the fact that this love word might be a real thing. Um, but in terms of the data itself, I mean, it's just really clear. We just finished this 27 country study, 27,000 people. So a stratified random sample of a thousand people in every country. And if you look at, um, if you look at what drives stress, uh, intent to leave, actively interviewing for another job, uh, resilience and engagement, it's this question, do I love what I do and I'm good at it? Now we've asked it all 17 different ways. Like, do you love what you do and you're not good at it? Are you really good at it? But you don't love what you do, you're not loving what you do and you're not good at it. But when people say they love what they do and they're good at it, all the other outcomes that you want, including performance and engagement and resilience and attrition and stress and discrimination, interestingly, um, they're all driven by whether or not a person feels like there is some sort of love in their work. So this is a wake up call for all CFOs. If you actually want to increase your payroll and reduce your profits and increase the costs of running your business, then don't talk about love at all because you'll do that. You'll, you'll drive attrition up, you'll reduce productivity and you'll reduce engagement with all the negative lost work days, accidents on the job. Um, all those things. If you if you want all those negative outcomes, don't talk about love at work. Just don't pay any attention to it. But if you want all those outcomes and indeed a really interestingly defined talent brand, which in super tight labor markets is really important. And dear CFO, if you don't understand that, then you need to go and look out in the world and realize that you can get capital like that. Human capital is really hard. And if you want an impediment to our growth, it will be because we can't find enough and keep enough good people. So our talent brand is critical. 
in this world right now, if you aren't talking about love and how humans can find it in their work, you are running a broken business. Now, it might not break immediately, but given everything that's going on demographically, it's going to break. And it will break because you didn't take seriously one of the defining aspects of the human experience. And so that's kind of what the call to arms is for the book to, to CFOs or CEOs or CHROs or HRDs is you can use the word connection if you want. You could use the word joy if you want. You could use the word passion if you want. But if you use all those words, you're not really getting to the heart of it. We do really, really well when we love what we do. Biochemically, we know that. And therefore, an organization should simply be really effective at taking advantage of what it is to be human. Well, love is a really important part of being a thriving human. So deal with it and figure out how to deploy it, figure out how to make use of it. It's not easy because everyone is different and loves different things. It's not easy, but it's impossible if you're not trying. So that's the call to arms I think I would make is it's, um, it's just bad business to build loveless work environments. That was Marcus Buckingham telling us why we need to bring love into the workplace. By the way, he told me that what we should all be looking at is our weird. It's W-Y-R-D. It's an ancient Norse term to describe the fact we're each born with these distinct spirits. We can find this out by completing sentences like Other people tell me that I... Or, I get a thrill from dot dot dot. So I'm off now to dig more into my weird. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to send me a tweet, it's at TPS Hub or at Sean Harrington. And you can follow me on LinkedIn. That's Sean Harrington, the people space. And if you want more insights and resources on the future of work, check out thepeoplespace.com. This episode was produced by Nigel Pritchard. You've been listening to Work's Not Working, so what are we going to do about it?